Hi, ParCast listeners. It's Vanessa with some incredible news. You can purchase your copy of our book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them, available now at parcast.com slash cults. Cults is an expanded look at the people who led and followed the most radical groups in history, with an unflinching exploration into what happens when the most vulnerable recesses of the mind are twisted into the lowest forms of malevolence. Details not featured on our podcasts. We're so proud to bring you this fantastic compilation of stories, and we're forever grateful for your support. Without you, none of this would be possible, so thank you. Visit parcast.com slash cults to order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. That's parcast.com slash cults to order today. This episode includes graphic descriptions of torture and murder. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under the age of 13. On a hot night in 1964... Elton Manzioni swatted a mosquito and marched through the dense underbrush in the Vietnamese demilitarized zone. The thick air made his shirt cling to his body like tar paper. But Elton was a U.S. Navy SEAL. A little humidity wouldn't disrupt this mission. The CIA had learned that a Viet Cong agent was shooting down American aircraft from a village near the border of North Vietnam. It was Elton's job to eliminate him. After a couple hours, Elton reached the village. He smeared his face with black paint and crawled on the ground towards the gate, stopping every few seconds to check for booby traps. He could hear his heart pounding in his chest. If the enemy turned a spotlight on him, he'd be a sitting duck. But no one stirred. It was deathly quiet. So Elton snuck into the hut where his target lay fast asleep, hidden under blankets. When he took out his commando knife, the figure stirred. He couldn't make out their face, but immediately he realized that the person was a woman. There was no time to think. Elton covered her mouth and forced the blade into her chest. Her body slumped. She was dead. But then Elton spotted another person. He hadn't expected there would be others in the home. In a split second, Elton did as he was trained. He shot and killed them. And only once he stood in the flickering light of the fire did he register the truth. He'd killed the wrong people. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events in search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. 
This is our first episode on the CIA and the Church Committee, a Senate panel that uncovered evidence of the agency's extrajudicial killings between 1947 and 1975. This episode, we'll look at how the CIA's nefarious activities stayed under the radar for nearly 30 years. Then, we'll follow the public outcry as their actions came to light and the Senate's investigation into the agency's murderous schemes. Next time, we'll examine three conspiracy theories involving the CIA and extrajudicial killings. First, that the CIA supported terrorists and criminals who committed murder. Then, we'll look at how they may have directly eliminated foreign heads of state. And finally, we'll discuss whether the CIA continues to assassinate civilians to this day. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. If you're interested in crazy stories from the wild world of organized crime, scams, gangs, cartels, mafias, drug dealers, and everything fun like that, have we got a podcast for you. The Underworld Podcast is hosted by two conflict journalists, Danny Gold and Sean Williams who have reported on all sorts of dangerous people in dangerous places. Every week, they bring you a new episode on international organized crime from a new corner of the globe. You can find the Underworld podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. When you think about the CIA, you might imagine a cadre of glamorous super spies with high-tech gadgets and tailored suits. And the agency has gone through a lot of trouble to cultivate that image, because the truth is a lot darker than they'd like to admit. The CIA operates in the shadows, their actions hidden under the banner of national security. Its clandestine nature is its greatest asset, because with secrecy, Comes impunity. This was true from the very beginning. In the summer of 1947, President Truman signed the National Security Act into law. Within those pages were six short paragraphs. Even though they were vague, they established an entirely new foreign intelligence service. Over the years, the agency has technically been focused on collecting and evaluating intelligence overseas. 
And while the original text of the 1947 Act did not explicitly mention covert action, there was a caveat. The CIA could perform, quote, other functions and duties related to intelligence affecting the national security. No one really knew what those words implied, and no one seemed to ask. During its first year, the CIA was in need of money, as it had been subsisting on leftovers from unrelated congressional programs. But within a year, they tapped into an enormous cash cow, the Marshall Plan. This nearly $14 billion aid program was designed to rebuild Western Europe, which had been devastated during World War II. While other agencies were tasked with rebuilding Europe's infrastructure and economies, the CIA had one target, communism. At the time, it was widely believed by citizens and lawmakers alike that the U.S. was locked into a life-or-death struggle against communism. Americans feared that if one country allied itself with the Soviets, others would soon follow, and eventually all nations would topple like dominoes, including the United States. The CIA was at the forefront of this ideological war. It promised to preempt Soviet aggression by gathering intelligence and promoting American ideals abroad. So about $700 million from the Marshall Plan went toward the CIA's effort to extinguish communist threats. With money in hand, the CIA took their fight against communism one step further. It wasn't enough to gather intelligence. The CIA believed that to protect the world from a communist takeover, they needed to influence nearly every election from Rome to Saigon. As early as 1947, the CIA funneled weapons and cash to anti-communist movements in countries that were on the brink of revolution. And in addition to influencing elections abroad, the agency set up charities and businesses to push American ideals in Europe. They used the money to open dozens of intelligence-gathering stations and hire thousands of employees who all worked to further American interests abroad. But the CIA's initial mission wasn't to implement programs like these. It was to gather intelligence. However, with all the time and money being spent on these operations, detailed intelligence analyses weren't necessarily flooding in. And sometimes they were very wrong. On September 20th, 1949, the agency reported the Soviets were four years away from developing a nuclear bomb. If that was true, it meant Americans had enough time to grow their atomic bomb technology and outwit the Russians. The news was a huge relief to American officials. But it was completely false. The Soviets had already tested their first atomic bomb a month before, without the U.S. even realizing. Their enemy not only had the technology, but were prepared to use it for war. So three days after the U.S. officials incorrectly reported that the Soviets were years from testing a nuclear weapon, the White House had to backtrack. On September 23, 1949, President Truman announced that they'd been wrong. The Soviets had successfully tested an atomic bomb. Now, both countries had similar technology. It was a slap in the face to America. The world was only just recovering from World War II, 
And now, the Soviets had tech that could rip countries apart. And even worse, this misreporting proved that American intelligence officials were operating in the dark. Meanwhile, the Central Intelligence Agency Act had recently been passed. The law permitted the CIA to use confidential fiscal and administrative procedures. In other words, it exempted the CIA from the standard oversight placed on most governmental agencies. Now, the agency was officially empowered to operate in almost total secrecy. It was a huge win for the CIA, and it paved the way for years of black ops missions. And ultimately, it was an insurance policy that the nation would not be caught on its heels with bad intelligence again. Approximately four years later, President Dwight Eisenhower was inaugurated. And from the very beginning of his term, he leaned heavily on the CIA. The agency was led by its new director, Alan Dulles. Dulles was cunning, ambitious, and had few, if any, moral scruples. He was also a masterful self-promoter. For years, he would use his cozy relationship with the press to burnish the CIA's image along with his own. According to historian Tim Weiner, Dulles flexed his power to control the narrative surrounding the CIA in major newspapers. He frequently planted stories to paint the agency favorably. Keeping up the facade that the CIA was a capable and skillful organization was important, but for Dulles, it was even more critical that the public never realized the CIA had few, if any, checks and balances. The agency reported to no one but its director. Even the president was only looped in to what Alan Dulles chose to share. He worked diligently with the press to ensure that the public was never privy to his autonomy. And in the background, the agency began plotting against their next target, Iran. For nearly 40 years, British oil companies had exploited Iran's resources to supply the British Navy with petroleum. They relied heavily on Iranian supplies during World War II and even invaded Iran, which, in part, was done to keep that petrol flowing. But everything changed when Mohammad Mossadegh came to power in 1951. The new prime minister nationalized Iran's oil. In an instant, the British lost everything. In 1952, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill formed a coup against Mossadegh, but the mission failed miserably. So by the end of the year, he reached out to the CIA for help. Initially, the U.S. didn't outwardly oppose Mossadegh, but in secret, the CIA jumped at the opportunity to help the British overthrow the Iranian government. In the agency's mind, the mission wasn't just about oil. It was about communism. Dulles described Iran to the president as being on the cusp of a Soviet takeover. If that happened, the Soviets would gain a strategic oil reserve and other countries in the Middle East could follow suit. So with Eisenhower's permission, CIA agents sent money to Iran. They bought the allegiance of politicians violent street gangs, and religious zealots. They funneled $75,000 to a retired Iranian major general 
who was expected to lead the coup. Soon, militaristic groups within Iran were staging violent attacks to look like the work of communists. Meanwhile, the CIA printed pamphlets denouncing Mossadegh as an enemy of Islam. Then, they enlisted the country's absent monarch, the Shah, to take part in a coup. In a top-secret document from that era, an agency official called the mission, quote, campaign to install pro-Western government in Iran. This completely contradicted the official stance the U.S. had taken on Iran. But it didn't matter. In August 1953, the CIA funded a violent mob to oust Mossadegh and instate a CIA-approved leader for Iran. They kidnapped members of the government and burned down four newspaper offices. More than 100 people died. By the end of it, Mossadegh was in prison and the Shah was in power. Back in Washington, behind closed doors, many politicians and bureaucrats applauded the victory, and Dulles milked his newfound glory as much as he could. For much of the next 25 years, American policy in Iran was dictated to the Shah directly through the CIA. At the time, few people expressed any regrets about feeding the fires of violent extremism. It would take years for anyone to realize that these efforts would come back to haunt multiple U.S. administrations. As it was, in 1953, the CIA played the role of the hero, and that image would go untarnished until 1961. Coming up, John F. Kennedy's fatal decision in the Bay of Pigs. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. I'm so excited to tell you that our first book is on sale now. This is such a big moment for the whole ParCast family, and we can't wait for you to read it. It's called Cults. Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. And you can purchase it today by visiting parcast.com slash cults. This is a passion project years in the making and only made possible by you. With your support, we've been able to get back to our storytelling roots. This time with a wealth of research and insights under our belt and intimate details not covered on our podcast before. Shame, exploitation, power... Cults unfolds the many motives behind groups like Nexium, Heaven's Gate, The People's Temple, and more, revealing eye-opening details which will surprise even the most devoted true crime fan. Visit parcast.com cults to order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them. That's parcast.com cults. And on behalf of everyone here at ParCast, thank you for joining us on this journey. We hope you enjoy. And now back to the story. Since its creation, the CIA has operated in the shadows. The agency promoted violent coups and used its influence to take over governments and nations. After the successful implementation of the Shah in Iran in 1953, the CIA was on a high. They'd shown themselves capable of overthrowing anti-Western governments. And soon, 
they'd face their biggest threat yet. In 1959, communist leader Fidel Castro took power in Cuba, a move that soon caused plenty of concern in the Western world. For years, worries of Soviet nuclear warfare were subdued because of geography. The USSR was far enough away from the United States that its missiles were unlikely to hit major U.S. cities. But now, a country about 90 miles off the coast of Florida had fallen to communism, and those Soviet missiles could hit the capital with little warning. Almost immediately after Castro came into power, President Eisenhower brought the problem to the agency. His message was clear. Castro had to be stopped. He reportedly left the details up to the CIA and his vice president, Richard Nixon. The vice president considered a plan to have the CIA prepare an invasion of Cuba. Alan Dulles then recruited hundreds of Cubans who'd fled the island after Castro's takeover and set up training centers in Guatemala. And theoretically, because these missions were happening abroad, the U.S. government could deny any involvement if things went wrong. By the time John F. Kennedy was inaugurated in January of 1961, preparations for a Cuban invasion were well underway. The agency promised the young president a quiet and successful coup. In doing so, they may have played down the amount of military support they'd actually need. JFK allegedly worried that if too many U.S. planes were flying above the bay, actively targeting Castro's men, the world would know that America was behind the secret invasion. Still, the mission went forward. On the morning of April 17, 1961, an armada of CIA-trained Cuban exiles sailed for the Bay of Pigs on the southern coast of Cuba. Their goal was to storm the capital and overthrow Castro. Without the necessary air cover, though, they were sitting ducks. Castro's air force swooped in and blew up the ships before they even reached shore. By the time they landed, the Cuban army was waiting for them. More than 100 people died, and over 1,100 were captured. It didn't take long before word of the CIA's involvement in this invasion leaked to the press. Though they tried their best to deny any part in the failed mission, it was hard to hide their proximity to the events. The exiles were trained by the CIA, and the plan had been underway for years at that point. The exiles had even begun to refer to the CIA as the Cuban Invasion Authority. Kennedy was furious. Though he hadn't approved an airstrike, the CIA had promised him an easy victory with this invasion. And yet, they'd broken the number one rule of espionage, keep a low profile. Instead, the agency delivered the president a steaming pile of public humiliation. After this failed mission in Cuba, officials in Washington knew the CIA needed a win. And soon, an opportunity presented itself. North Vietnam. In the early 1960s, the CIA partnered with South Vietnamese politicians to wage a brutal counterinsurgency campaign in communist North Vietnam. By 1967, the CIA had solidified its approach. First, they would identify North Vietnamese officers willing to commit treason. 
Then they would gain intelligence through them and pass that information to the South Vietnamese. Finally, they would coordinate the elimination of Vietnamese communist targets in North and South Vietnam. The caveat, though, was that all of this had to be done in secret. Publicly, the U.S. had no direct involvement in the war. So in the dead of night, the CIA sent small teams of black-clad commandos into enemy villages. These soldiers would kill suspected communist leaders or kidnap them and bring them across the border for interrogation if necessary. A communist soldier named Chan Van Truong recalled being snatched and brought to a secret South Vietnamese prison jointly operated by the CIA, where he witnessed other prisoners chained up like animals. They held him in a room with iron hooks on the walls, which gave off the impression of a medieval torture chamber. It took years for this information to come to light. Finally, in 1970, A journalist published some of these grotesque revelations for the first time. He called the program, quote, an instrument of mass political murder. By that time, the U.S. had formally entered the Vietnam War, and public outrage about America's involvement in Southeast Asia was growing. News that this program had already killed or captured more than 6,000 people only emboldened anti-war activists. Americans were livid. Some of those murdered and captured weren't even communist leaders. This indicated two grim realities. The CIA's intelligence wasn't always accurate, and because penalties for mistakes were non-existent, the CIA had a blank check to do as they pleased. The 1970 article was a gut punch to the authorities in Washington, who were desperate to maintain support for the war. Trust in government had eroded since the Bay of Pigs, made worse by several draconian crackdowns on anti-war protesters throughout the 1960s and 70s. And then, Watergate. In June 1972, a group of men were caught breaking into the Democratic National Committee headquarters. And soon, the world learned that the group was largely made up of individuals with ties to the CIA. Worse, the break-in was actually organized by E. Howard Hunt, one of the agency's most distinguished operatives before his retirement. The same people who'd taken an oath to protect their country had used their power to try to manipulate the U.S. presidential election. The investigation that followed revealed that President Richard Nixon's team had hired the group to spy on his political opponents. One of the president's aides even went a step further, asking Hunt to assassinate a journalist who'd been a constant source of irritation for Nixon. It was all too much for the American people to stomach. They felt betrayed by the very people responsible for protecting them. The straw that broke the camel's back came on December 21st, 1974, with a New York Times article by Seymour Hersh. He claimed the CIA had illegally spied on more than 10,000 Americans. According to Hirsch, the CIA investigated anti-war protesters, troublemakers, and political dissidents. This included sitting members of Congress and college students. Spying on citizens was way out of bounds. 
Publicly, the CIA's primary objective had always been to collect foreign intelligence. Agency officials responded by saying everything they'd done was focused on stopping foreign agents that had infiltrated the country, including Soviet spies. No one bought it. The rage in Washington was palpable. The CIA's new director, William Colby, described it as a firestorm of hostility, all aimed at him. Colby himself knew of the CIA's atrocities, and he'd planned to reform the agency quietly from within. But now, the cat was out of the bag. To most observers, it looked like the CIA was out of control. President Ford, who'd succeeded President Nixon, knew that appearing complacent would destroy him in the polls, so he created a commission to investigate the CIA. However, to most people, it was like the fox promising to guard the hen house. After all, the president was the only person who could have controlled the CIA. And up until that point, no commander-in-chief had demonstrated any interest in doing so. There was no reason to think that would change now. So in response, several representatives in the House created their own panel. The Pike Committee worked diligently for months only to find their final report censured by their colleagues. The last hope at reforming the CIA lay in the Senate. And on January 27, 1975, the Senate established an investigative committee to probe CIA abuses. They appointed Frank Church to be its chairman. Church was the perfect choice. In the halls of the Senate, his colleagues called him Frank Sunday School, because he always took the moral high ground. He was a champion debater and unamused by petty lobbying games. A previous brush with cancer only made him more determined. In other words, most thought Church was beyond reproach. And since his committee included moderates from both sides of the aisle, the group had the sheen of impartiality, which was critical if they wanted the White House and CIA to cooperate with their requests. At first, the White House handed over documents without much of a fuss. But in February 1975, one reporter brought forth accusations that would shift the committee's focus and narrow the scope of its investigation, for better and for worse. When journalist Daniel Shore went on national television that month, he laid out accusations that the CIA was involved in the assassination of foreign officials. He didn't have proof, but he claimed that President Ford and CIA Director Colby had warned associates that if the congressional investigations dug too deep, they might discover a number of assassination attempts. With this shocking update, the church committee zeroed in. It wasn't just about examining the agency and its mishaps anymore. Now the committee wanted to focus specifically on CIA assassinations. The White House responded by basically cutting off the flow of information. But the committee fought back. Slowly but surely, they pieced together a damning portrait of America's intelligence network. The implications were unlike anything the agency had faced before. Coming up, the CIA faces the light of day. And now back to the story. 
After nearly 30 years of operating in the dark, by 1975, the CIA was finally being investigated. And despite President Ford's best efforts to contain Senator Frank Church and his committee, the group uncovered a number of atrocities committed at the hands of America's intelligence officials. The Church Committee linked the CIA to five murder plots involving foreign heads of state. They had planned or considered assassinations in Cuba, Vietnam, Chile, the Dominican Republic, and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. They called these missions, quote, executive actions. And according to CIA Director William Colby, various presidents and Congress had, at the very least, permitted them through its lack of oversight. During the Church Committee's first public hearing, the world saw firsthand how much effort the CIA put into murder. Cyanide pills, dart guns filled with a deadly shellfish toxin. Most troublingly of all, the agency had worked with biological weapons like smallpox. If anyone let that disease out of the lab, the consequences could have been far worse than any pandemic of the 20th century. Thankfully, that didn't happen. What the Church Committee discovered, though, was that the CIA's number one target was Fidel Castro. Back in the early 1960s, the CIA created a program to train assassins, codenamed Rifle. They hired a hitman from Luxembourg. They even asked the American syndicate of La Cosa Nostra for help. To know more about that angle, we recommend you check out part two of our recent episodes on the Mafia. It's pretty wild. It probably says something about the CIA's capabilities that President Castro lived to be 90 years old. Despite its diabolical schemes, the agency wasn't always so effective. However, that was beside the point, and Frank Church knew it. It didn't matter that the CIA missions had failed. It mattered that they had tried to kill foreign political leaders in the first place. The CIA acted like they were above the law because every single president, from Eisenhower to Nixon, had allowed them to be. But with the Church Committee closing in, it looked like the agency's free reign was about to end. For his part, President Ford did everything he could to stall the investigation. On November 2, 1975, he fired Director Colby and replaced him with a more trustworthy political ally, George H.W. Bush. Then, Ford sent a letter to every member of the committee telling them to keep certain findings secret. He argued that airing the CIA's dirty laundry would cripple the U.S. government's ability to function overseas. It would be a boon to the Soviets and threaten America's national security. Ford's behavior might seem surprising, but then again, in his early days as a congressman, Ford had served as J. Edgar Hoover's informant on the Warren Commission. He fed the FBI director intel about the congressional investigation of JFK's assassination. There was some precedent for Ford showing his loyalty to America's agencies over its citizens. Ford also did his best to make sure that no one spilled any more secrets. 
He explicitly forbade agency employees from testifying about subjects like Chile and ordered his staff to stonewall requests for documents. Yet the president's efforts were too little too late. Frank Church already had everything he needed to make a compelling case. On November 20th, 1975, 10 months after the investigation was approved, Church delivered an interim report on the CIA's assassination program to every senator. When Senator Church recommended they release the report to the press, the room descended into chaos. He was met with shouts and ridicule. Many senators left the chamber in protest, possibly hoping to stall a vote. The findings detailed assassination plots against numerous foreign leaders. Some, like Fidel Castro, were direct threats to national security. But in other cases, the CIA had attempted to replace democratically elected heads of state with brutal despots. Government officials railed at the implications of the report. Like Ford, many argued that Senator Church was airing America's dirty laundry. Plus, they worried the nation's allies would lose faith in the CIA's ability to keep secrets and refuse to work together in the future. However, the press sided with Church. Many newspapers heralded the report as a breakthrough. Journalist David Wise called it, quote, one of the most chilling and important documents ever made public by a committee of Congress. And the public was outraged to learn that their tax dollars were going to these missions. Church had hoped the report could be the first step in fixing America's broken intelligence agencies. At the root of the problem was a near-total lack of oversight. This was clear from how the agency shielded the presidency from any accountability for these missions. For example, if a president told the CIA he wanted a dictator overthrown, he didn't need to say or do anything else. From that point on, the agency could keep POTUS out of the loop entirely. This way, the president was, as former CIA director Richard Helms once said, quote, protected from the dirty stuff. To many, it seemed like the CIA and U.S. government were more concerned about saving face than they were about holding up American ideals. It was this willful ignorance that allowed the CIA to collect data on 1.5 million American citizens at the time and commit human rights violations far beyond what any had expected. In other words, the lack of oversight could be classified as unconstitutional. Which meant that it needed a really bold solution. Congress had to rewrite the laws governing covert action and add layers of governance to prevent further abuse. Church's final report included 97 recommendations for new laws, including the creation of a Senate Oversight Committee on Intelligence. While Frank Church worked to make that happen, the CIA and White House waged their PR offensive. About a month after the interim Church report became public, a leftist paper reportedly released information about a CIA station chief, Richard Welch, in Greece. Soon after, Welch was gunned down in his driveway. The CIA then used this as an opportunity to reframe the public conversation about the agency. They claimed his death was due to the intelligence leaks overtaking the American press. 
which some say was prompted by Church airing the agency's transgressions to the public, and the press ran with it. One reporter even accused the Church Committee of being directly responsible for Welch's death. These stories turned Welch into a martyr. Hate mail piled up in Senate mailboxes. One group even threatened to kill Frank Church. As public support for the Church Committee dried up, the senator realized his window of opportunity was closing. 1976 was an election year, and Americans were sick of feeling embarrassed by their government. They'd endured the Bay of Pigs, Vietnam, and Watergate. Now they just wanted to open the paper and read about something else. But Frank Church kept at it. In May 1976, the Senate established the Select Committee on Intelligence. It was a brand new oversight body with the authority to monitor classified operations from the CIA and other agencies. Even though this might sound like a huge win, it wasn't much, at least in the beginning. There were measures that could easily prevent the new committee from releasing documents. However, it did set the ball rolling for future reforms that may not have happened otherwise. Future President Jimmy Carter studied the church report closely and made intelligence reform a talking point on his campaign trail. He even called the CIA, quote, a national disgrace. And he chose Senator Walter Mondale, one of the report's authors, to be his running mate. After he was elected, President Carter issued an executive order prohibiting assassinations. It also prevented intelligence agencies from infringing upon the rights of American citizens, along with several other changes. But Carter's work was arguably undone only a few years later by President Reagan. So it went, two steps forward, one step back. This pattern of reforming the CIA always started with some kind of scandal. In the 1980s, it was the Iran-Contra fiasco, where the CIA was caught selling guns to Iran and giving that money to Nicaraguan rebels. And as recently as 2014, the U.S. Senate released a report revealing that the CIA illegally tortured suspected terrorists. In sometimes excruciating detail, the report showed that some detainees were beaten or waterboarded. One was stripped naked and chained to the cell bars to elicit a confession. The U.S. claimed these so-called enhanced interrogations would lead to national security intelligence. But from what we've seen, they never actually produced anything useful. Each incident prompted a fresh wave of outrage, followed by calls for reform. Some agency employees would be forced to leave the organization, but some got promoted. After one report identified Gina Haspel as the commandant of a notorious CIA prison in Thailand, she was appointed as the director of the CIA. By now, it might feel like a pattern is emerging. The CIA steps out of line, it becomes public, and the agency promises to do better. Then the next president faces a crisis and asks the CIA for an outside-the-box solution. And, like a faithful servant, the CIA obliges. It's worth pointing out that one line it doesn't appear they've crossed 
is the moratorium on extrajudicial murder implemented in the 1970s. Since then, assassinations have remained explicitly banned. Or at least, that's what the CIA says. If you've been listening closely, though, you know to take that claim with a grain of salt. Next time, we'll cover three conspiracy theories surrounding the CIA's extrajudicial killings. Starting with whether the CIA supported terrorists they knew would carry out murder on the agency's behalf. We'll also discuss if the CIA has directly killed foreign leaders, including heads of state. And finally, we'll ask, is the CIA still assassinating people to this day? Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back next time with a new episode on the CIA. Among the various sources we used, we found Legacy of Ashes, The History of the CIA by Tim Weiner, and A Season of Inquiry Revisited, The Church Committee Confronts America's Spy Agencies by Locke K. Johnson to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Xander Bernstein, edited by Amber Hurley and Mackenzie Moore, with fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Listeners, remember to visit parcast.com slash cults to order your copy of our first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's on sale today, and I can't wait for you to dive in. Nexium, The Branch Davidians, Heaven's Gate, and more. Cults takes you beyond the headlines for an intimate look at the sordid beginnings and deadly ends of the most radical groups in history. Details never heard on our show before. If you love our cult series or any of our true crime podcasts, this book is for you. Without your loyalty and support, none of this would be possible. So we truly hope you enjoy. Visit parcast.com slash cults to order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's on sale and ready to read right now. Order today at parcast.com slash cults. <laughs>